In the late 80s and early 90s, there wasn't a bigger, more larger than life, more awesome and terrifying athlete than Mike Tyson. So I was not old enough to um, fully appreciate Mike Tyson as the boxer. I, I kind of missed the boat on that. But in college, I did play a lot of Mike Tyson's Punch Out! the video game. And let me tell you, Mike Tyson, the Nintendo athlete, was terrifying enough, let alone Mike Tyson, the unstoppable, fierce boxer. He set a new standard for fame for a boxer and set new highs in career earnings. Through fight winnings, through endorsements, through other business ventures like Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, Mike Tyson earned over $400 million in his career. It was an unprecedented amount of money for a boxer and, showed his, uh, and was representative of his cultural stature during his peak. We remember that it wasn't that long before Mike Tyson that it was totally believable that a boxer from Philly named Rocky would live in a rundown studio apartment, and then 20 years later, Mike Tyson is literally buying a tiger. <laughs> so for many of us in this room, $400 million is set for life money. Check that. For all of us in this room, $400 million is way more than set for life money. That's I'm set for life, my kids are set for life, my grandkids are set for life kind of money. And so it was very surprising, dare I say shocking, that in 2003, Mike Tyson filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That massive $400 million sum had been depleted. He had no way to cover his debts. He was in financial ruin. In the wake of that announcement, stories came about the financial extravagances of Tyson's lifestyle. Mansions, jewelry, diamonds, gold. Did I mention the tiger? Tyson had been blessed with immense talent that he had used to accrue a vast amount of wealth that he then squandered. I remember hearing that story that Tyson filed bankruptcy and being completely and utterly shocked. In 2012, ESPN aired as part of their 30 for 30 documentary series a look into how athletes can spend and lose vast sums of money. Entitled Broke, the episode showed how money is not as secure as we might think and how the culture of more can impact those with more money to an even greater extent. There's a familiar story in the Bible that outlines this issue that shows how the pull of financial gravity can lead to not just financial ruin, but to ruin our lives and souls and well-being. We're going to be looking at the story of the prodigal son. Now, a lot of times we look at this as a story of grace and a story of redemption, but it is also a story about financial management. Um, and since it's somewhat of a familiar story. I'm going to walk us through and break in here and there to offer some comments. This is found in Luke 15, and it's beautifully displayed with a pair of feet. <laughs> Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. 
So the father divided his property between the two sons. So I don't know what I find more outrageous about the start of the parable. That one son came to his father and said, give me my share of the inheritance while the father was still alive or that the father gave it to him. Both are equally crazy. Can you imagine a son going to his father and saying, dad, you've had a great run, but frankly, I'd planned on you kicking the bucket a few years ago and I can't wait any longer to get what's coming to me. Um, so can we just hook me up right now? Cause I'd really like to be done with this family. That's what the younger brother is saying here. But what might be even crazier, the father gives him the money. I can't imagine going to my dad and saying, hey, since some of the value of this house will be mine someday, can you take out a home equity loan now so that I can get it now? But even if I did that, I'm sure my dad would say no faster than if I offered him peas. Because my dad doesn't like peas. He doesn't like vegetables. Sorry, that was bad. But strange as it seems, the father does indeed give his son his share of the inheritance, and our story continues. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. The son takes the money and sets off on an epic road trip. He thinks that he has an infinite sum of money. He thinks that he has money such that he will never have to worry about anything ever again. He thinks that he is young, invincible, employable, and that the world is his oyster. Basically, he's a millennial. Just kidding. And he spends and 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 spends. What he discovers, much to his surprise and terror, is that his money does have an end and that he has found it. Then he is struck with a bit of bad luck. Just as his money is running out, the economy tanks. And the friends he thought he had back when he had money won't take his calls. There are no good jobs available to him. His investments tanked. I might be taking some liberties with some of the historical aspects of the story, but he takes a dirty job as it's the only way he can barely scrape by. And this bit about longing to eat the pods that the pigs were eating makes me think of a Gerald and Piggy book entitled, I Really Like Slop. When he came to his senses, the Bible says, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Finally, he realizes that his father will take him on and whatever job his father will give him will be better than the dirty job he's doing. No matter how much shame he has to bear, that'll all be better than the life that he has made for himself on his own. 
Up until this moment of the story, uh, sorry, up until this moment, sorry, whew, needed more than two cups of coffee. Maybe I need to open that Mountain Dew. <laughs> up until this moment, this story has lived in the economy of me, me, me. The younger son felt entitled to his share of the inheritance. It was his. His money ran out. And in the me, me, me economy, when his money ran out, it was a problem of infinite proportion. In the economy of me, 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 what's mine is not yours and don't ever expect it to be. No one was willing to take care of, be associated, or help someone out who had nothing. What is the solution to this? Where does grace, salvation, good news, gospel come in? It comes when we leave the economy of me, me, me and enter into an economy of grace. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The father doesn't live in the economy of me, me, me. The father lives in an economy of grace. He lives in the space where the goal isn't to acquire more and more and more, instead where the goal is to bless. The father seeks to use his possessions to bless others. The son left his father, taking everything and returns with nothing. The father gives the son who has nothing a ring, a cloak, a party, and the fattened calf. The father doesn't give the son who has nothing just a little bit. He gives the son who has nothing everything, out of abundance. Our Father has given us everything, out of abundance. We are the younger son who had nothing. We are the younger son who had no ability to make our own way and who had nothing to give to the Father, nothing to make it right. And the Father has given us more than we could ever ask for. What is the response to this extravagant generosity? Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he joined right in, happy to see his brother, right? So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became joyful, so happy to see his younger brother at last. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? 
My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is a story we tell a lot in church. And the focus of the story typically is always on the younger son and the father, which is cool, I guess. The older son doesn't get as much screen time, which I take personal offense to because I am the older brother, both in life and in the story. But when we do talk about the older son, we talk about how jaded and cynical he is, how wrong it is for him to brood instead of celebrate. We may even talk about how we shouldn't be the older son when it comes to welcoming new people into the church. Rarely do we assume that we ourselves already are the older brother. And rarely do we look at the economic outlook of the older brother. I think the older brother is also operating in the economy of me, me, me. I think the older brother might be standing off at a distance, angry, because the younger brother has already gotten his share. The older brother, uh, sorry, the older brother already, younger brother already took what was his. And yet here was the father giving the younger son more. And perhaps the older brother might be thinking, here is my father giving my brother things that are mine. The older brother cannot join his father in the economy of grace. The older brother feels the weight of the financial gravity that ties him to his stuff. But friends, I've got to tell you, I think we might be more like the older brother than we think. Christian Smith, who's a sociologist and does a lot of studies on the church, did a five-year study on Americans' giving habits called the Science of Generosity Initiative. In the resulting book, co-authored by Smith and Hillary Davidson, which is called The Paradox of Generosity, he reports that 44.8% of the thousands of people in his study report giving zero dollars to charitable purposes. 44.8%, four out of every nine people said they gave nothing to church, nothing to the Red Cross, nothing to the American Cancer Society, nothing to their alma mater, nothing to all of the things that on the football screen tell you if you just text this number, you'll give $5 to lots of good stuff, nothing to the myriad nonprofits that send you free address labels, and you know they were using those address labels, At Christmas time, they walked right by the guide ringing the bell. In the spring, they told the Girl Scouts they wanted no cookies, nothing, nada, zilch. Before you think I'm being too harsh, this is self-reported. We didn't look at any tax, well, I didn't look at anything. No one looked at any tax returns. No one looked at any financial documents they weren't supposed to be looking. This is, it didn't come as a result of a court subpoena. These are four out of nine people freely admitting they gave nothing to nobody. And another 41.9% reported giving less than 2% of their annual income for charitable purposes. Now, what we'll hear a lot of Uh, a lot of the time when it comes to talking about generosity, stewardship, and giving, is that people really want to give more money, but they can't, so they give their time. 
Maybe this 44.8% has very little disposable income, so they gave their time to nonprofits and other charitable activities. However, in the same study, 76% of people reported giving zero volunteer hours to any charitable organization. All of this despite a vast majority of Americans wanting to live purposeful lives, wanting to make a difference, wanting to be the type of people and live the type of lives that generosity makes possible. And yet nearly half the people gave nothing to charity and three quarters give no time. But Pastor Matt, you'll say, this is a survey of average Americans. If you were to survey Christians, you'd certainly see that those in the church are more generous. I mean, every year we hear pastors talking to us about giving, and our Bibles tells us that God asks for one-tenth of what we have. Surely Christians will be better at generosity than just regular folks who are at Starbucks right now. And you would be right that Christians are more generous than the population as a whole. Christian Smith wrote another book called Passing the Plate that looked at generosity patterns of Christians. While Christians are more generous than their average American peers— Still, one out of every five American Christians makes no financial contribution to any charitable organization, including the church. Look to your left. Look, never mind. In, a 1998, in 1998, a general, society, uh, general social survey showed that the average American Christian contributes 2.9% of their pre-tax annual household income to charitable organizations. Additionally, the survey showed that 72% of American Christians contribute less than 2% of their income to charitable causes. Again, these charitable causes include the church. And this data is nearly 20 years old. In the past 20 years, we have seen church participation decrease sharply. I imagine if the data was current, that percentage of American Christians who give less than 2% of their income to charitable causes uh, may well be in the 80s. None of this is to browbeat you. All of this is to say that generosity isn't about resources, it's about identity. In this parable, we have three characters. The younger son is weighed down by financial gravity because he is a spendthrift. He is completely caught up in the culture of more, having more, getting more, having fun experiences. The older son is weighed down by financial gravity as well. His comes through trying to hold on to and lock down the things that are his. At the end of the story, financial gravity has kept both of them caught in the me, me, me economy. Only the father is able to break free of financial gravity. Only the father is able to show love and grace with his possessions. Only the father finds joy in his possessions. Only the father does something of lasting and of importance. Only the father can be generous. And it has nothing to do with the amount of resources each character has. Goodness knows that the older son had resources out the wazoo that he was trying so desperately to hold on to. Only the father... And that's because he lives in the economy of grace. Generosity isn't about resources. It's about identity. Which of these characters do you want to be?